Welcome to the Kinkle Fritz and Friends podcast. If you want to hear the show, you can find it on Family Life Radio. If you want to find a station near you, you can go to myflr.org or stream it online. Well, we are excited today to talk about suffering. <laughs> yes, amen. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but the good news is there is hope attached to this. This is this is fun. This is really I I like this book. We've got Dr. Kurt Thompson with us, and I just love the cover, cover Kurt, uh, mm. looking at this beautiful, looks like a river going through the trees, and mm. uh, yeah. I just want to, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, so this kind of looks a mm. little bit like home, but the book is called <laughs> yep. The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation mm. of Hope. <gasps> thank you so mm. much for joining us. Well, thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you. Uh, I'm just, I've been looking forward to this. And uh, looking forward to our conversation. Yeah. Now, you're a psychiatrist, so you've talked to a lot of people that have dealt with suffering. And I know that mm. you've dealt with, with suffering for yourself. Why don't mm. we start right there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I grew up in the state of Ohio, and I was the, I'm the youngest of four sons. I lost my father when I was 17. I've, I've had three older brothers um, who have passed from cancer. Um, and you know, uh, there, there are elements of suffering. Uh, yes. Wow. And, um, there are elements of suffering enough in that. And at the same time, I grew up in an evangelical Quaker community, uh, where Jesus, uh, began to come to find me, uh, in multiple different moments throughout the course of my life. And, uh, I've been married for 37 years and I uh, have two adult kids. Um, and I, I would say that, um, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have been surrounded and am surrounded now by, uh, people who have loved me at, despite myself, I mm. don't deserve my life and I can't believe I get paid to do what I do, um, as a physician and as a, as a psychiatrist. And I, I think I would say that, um, this book in particular uh, kind of in following on, on the heels of three others that I've written about neuroscience and Christian spiritual formation and the like, um, this really, uh, emerged as I, it just became clear about how, uh, the Christian story, uh, is the one story in the world that honors suffering. Mm. Uh, Eastern metaphysics, uh, tend to want to uh, pretend it's, or, or, or live as if it's not really real. I want to somehow, imagine my way out of it. Western metaphysics want to do everything we can to stop it, but we only see it as bad. And we, in the Christian story, sir, we believe we serve a God uh, for whom everything that is painful and wrong about the world, including our suffering, is something that uh, he is going to use to transform all of our carnage into beauty, even the very suffering itself. And so, um, the, the book is really a way, if my, my contribution, what my small contribution to honor the suffering uh, of the people who have uh, been in my office and I've had the privilege of, of walking with. Um, and also, it is, it is a story of great hope. I mean, this, this is also the Christian story that it is in. Uh, if you're human, you're going to suffer. And for many of our listeners, they, those who are suffering know that we're speaking to them today. And those, uh, the rest of us, uh, if we're not, we will be, or we have, and it's only a matter of time. And if we're really following Jesus, we're going to find that there will be parts of our lives that will suffer because of that very fact, because 
He's not content with us to remain in our addictions and to remain in my the parts of me that are afraid to be loved, and he will come for them. And there will be a certain suffering that is included in my work at allowing him to love me. And uh, we find then that in the process of confronting that suffering, that's the very place where the most durable hope that we come to know as human beings can be formed, which is really good news. The subtitle is Suffering and the Formation of Hope. Well, we'll just start with the basics there. How do you define suffering and then how do you define hope? Suffering is a function of our pain. We say pain is any noxious stimulus that we encounter, whether that's emotional or physical. Suffering really has to do with our response to pain over time. That's how we experience suffering. I have a paper cut and uh, it doesn't last for very long. I have um, rheumatoid arthritis that lasts forever. I can have a certain discomfort, but it's also how do I encounter that over time? And part of my challenge is the fact that I can tell time as a human. The mind of a human tells time like no other animal does. We can anticipate that you know, squirrels are able to keep track of where they kept their nuts for the year, but we don't anticipate <laughs> that they're having conversations with other squirrels about what will next year's harvest be like. Right. They're not anticipating <laughs> things in the way that we do. And the fact that we can tell time in the way that we do means that we can anticipate a future potentially in which my pain is not ever going to stop. And that in and of itself is a prominent feature of what makes suffering suffering. My capacity to imagine a future in which perhaps what I'm experiencing right now is not ever going to end. And herein lies the significance and the beauty of a vulnerable community that is able to draw my attention to themselves, draw my attention to them, and they're coming for me in the middle of my pain. But not just one time, but over the course of however long my pain lasts. I mean, one of the things that we see with Job's friends is that it they got to a point where they just couldn't take it anymore. And what they couldn't, what they couldn't take was not Job's suffering. They couldn't take their own distress at Job's suffering. And so at some point, like they had to jump into the conversation and start to ask questions. Well, what did you do? You must have done something. Here's my answer for why you're suffering. And they have to do this because they can't tolerate the presence of Job's suffering in the way that he was experiencing it. And what the community of faith, what the body of Jesus is doing is saying, we are going to be with you for as long as this pain lasts and we aren't leaving the room. And that in and of itself is the very basis for how we form hope. We for Hope is therefore not something that maybe I'll have it and maybe I won't. I hope that I'm hopeful. It is not something that drops out of the sky into my lap. It is something that I actually have agency to form over time in a vulnerable community in which I'm willing to receive people's care for me in such a way that when they do, I encode that in my memory, which becomes that from which I anticipate my future in which even if my pain lasts, I'm anticipating a future in which I'm not gonna be left alone. I like how you're involving people in the hope there. You know, I, I can relate to what you're talking about because my wife and I have a daughter diagnosed with multiple uh, disabilities and she's got cerebral palsy. She's nonverbal and uh, she's non-ambulatory. So the, the, the deduction is she will probably live with us for the rest of our lives and we love her. There's joy with her. There's, 
There's a lot mm-hmm. of pain, though. And you talked mm-hmm. about your arthritis, and because of the situation, I have a lot of physical issues with my body and trying to take care of her. But yeah, this could be the reality for the rest of our lives. And so you're right, time connected to uh, whatever pain you're going through, uh, I can relate to that and try to find hope in, in where we're at, too. You know, Right. You bring up this notion of special needs, and you may know our friends Jay and Catherine Wolf, um, who have their own story of disability. And they have a camp for people with disabilities called Hope Heals, Hope Heals Camp. And they run this every year. And the hope that they imagine and that they form is directly a function of creating a community of people who every year are together. And this way of being in this place together is a way for us to know that even in our pain, We are not by ourselves with this. And this goes right back to the second page of the Bible where we hear this first observation from God that it's the first thing that's not good, which is for us, for the man to be alone. And this notion of being alone is the primary reason that we become anxious and then become depressed and then become all the things that suffering is grounded in. This sense that suffering isn't just about my pain, but suffering is about my being alone with my pain. And to the degree that humans are able to experience others being with them, this mitigates my suffering. It does not eliminate my pain, but it allows my experience of suffering to be that space in which I am loved even more deeply. And of course, you know, there's also the temptation, if I'm the one who's suffering and you're gonna be with me, at some point I'm gonna think, well, when is, when is Crank gonna leave? When is he, when am I gonna become too much? When is my suffering going to get to the point where he's like, yeah, this has been fine for the last six weeks or six months or six years. But at some point, I see myself as exhausting those, which is its own layer of the suffering, because I'm telling myself a story that at some point I'm going to become too much. And this is the story of the gospel that God says, I never run out of resources or options. No one is ever going to be too much for me. And this is what the body of Jesus is intended to communicate to those around us, especially those who are suffering. You mentioned hospitality towards suffering. Is this kind of what you mean? That's exactly right. I mean, again, we in the West in particular, we, we're not very hot. We, you know, we're not hospitable to it. No. <laughs> we, we, we just automatically see it as a thing that we got to eliminate. Yep. Like it's just, it's just, we don't pause and be curious about, you know, of course, of course we want to do what is necessary. We want to stop suffering where we can. Of course we will. We come to certain places though, where we're just aware that that suffering is not going to be something we can eliminate. Uh, when, when you're um, imagining the life of your daughter and your life with your daughter, there isn't some sense of like, oh, I see where this, how this is going to end, you know, happily in the next six months. And so this notion of coming into that space and acknowledging this, naming that that's what this is, in order for us to have the experience and the practice of God meeting us and saying, yep, you're absolutely right. This is really hard. And I want you to hear me and sense me sensing how hard this is for you. And this is what the body of Jesus, this is part of what our intended purpose is to be about, that we are to be with those who are suffering, not just to change their life, 
but to change the life of me who's going to be with you. To recognize that I will have my own suffering and to recognize that in this way we enter into the sufferings of Jesus who comes to be present with us in the fullness of who we are so that he doesn't just say to us then, oh, I know what it's like for you to be you. And so we can have a sense of Jesus kind of now understanding me, but he can also say to us, now you have a sense of what it's like for me to be me in the suffering that I walk with and that I carry. And this then becomes what the world looks at and says, you know, there is something odd about those Christians. <laughs> like what, like, like what's up with that? What's up with this group that enters into suffering with each other? And then they talk about being hopeful. Like what, what, like what is it about this story such that out of suffering, hope is emerging? Like that we don't, you know, we don't have, we don't have mathematical equation for this. We would say that's right because uh, none of us do outside of God sending Jesus to be with us in our suffering. So much to take in that I'm going to take you back to Job. <laughs> Job mm. sitting there with his uh, wonderful three friends and you alluded to the fact that they stuck with him for a time before they started in on a whole different direction. And I never thought of it that way, that they were dealing with their own pain. Take me mm. back there again. I need uh, to be a better witness myself, you know? You know, one of the things that we tell people that we're, that we're working with is that uh, human beings are, are really, for the most part, most of the time, most, if, if I have a problem, uh, uh, I, I know that if I have a problem with my car, I'm going to take it to somebody else to help fix it because I can't do something about that. But there's a lot of things about my life for which the, uh, the things I need to do to resolve that, uh, it's not because I need more information. What I need is more courage. And the courage that I'm able to acquire to uh, do the things I need to do is going to come primarily because someone else is going to be willing to be with me in my anxiety about whatever this thing is. But you know how it is. We get together with our friends who have problems and we start to want to help them. We want to give them suggestions about what they can do to solve their problem. And, the, and, and of course, of course, we're like on the surface, we're trying to be helpful. But what I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to mitigate my own distress. I'm having a hard time being with my friend who has a problem because their problem is making me anxious. <laughs> wow. Interesting. I'm listening to them talk about my problem. Their problem because as we like to say in the business, uh, my anxiety is always ultimately about me. It's always ultimately about me. It is not only about me. When I'm anxious about my children, and we have all kinds of reasons to be anxious about our children, but I can tell, I tell parents, your anxiety is always ultimately about you. And they say, come on, Kurt. Like, it's, it's my kid. It's my kid. And, and they're academic this. And, 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 they're, and they're medical that. And so I'm, I'm anxious about my kid. Right. You are anxious about your child. But that's not ultimately what this is about. Ultimately, what this is about is whatever happens with your child, when that takes place, what's that going to be like for you? Your brain is already anticipating this. Your brain is already paying a lot more attention to you than it is paying attention to your child. It's not only paying attention to you, but it is ultimately paying attention to you. So when I'm with my friends who have trouble, it's really difficult for me to sit with them and just be present and say, this is really hard. This is really hard. And when I get anxious, it's hard for me sometimes to say, oh my gosh, and this reminds me of the parts of me 
that I feel like I can't get fixed. Just like Job had this part of him that he couldn't get fixed. And instead of them saying, dude, this is like, this is really hard. And I get it. Like they're, they're, and it's reminding things about, about my own story that where I, like, I don't have my stuff together in my story either. No, that's not what they do. They have a plan <laughs> for Job's life. <laughs> yep. They have solutions for him because what they're really trying to do in that moment is to mitigate their own distress. And as long as they can make this part of Job's story, then it keeps them from having to deal with their own. Aren't we lovely, selfish people? Right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I don't guess I ever really positioned anxiety in my mind as a me thing. That's kind of a revelation, but like the more I think about it, and what a great way for the enemy to use it against us, honestly, mm. in so many capacities. Mm. Like we've, we've talked about before, I get anxious about my anxiety. <laughs> like, right. I, I struggle with so many mental health issues. And one of the, the ways that anxiety really creeps in is when I feel like I should be sharing what God has done through my story. It's that voice. You really can talk about sick Misty again. I think people are sick of it. And then I start getting anxious about my anxiety. <laughs> and right. it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm. It is. And there is a certain and, and 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 so this is another thing that often happens for people. Um there's this sense in which if you were to ask most folks who were listening to this, if you were asked many, like, well, if, what in what way are you suffering? They say, Well, there's not there's not really anything. I can't, I can't think of a way in which I'm actively suffering. And I think in many respects, this is largely because there probably are areas in which we suffer, but we look around and we compare ourselves to other people who are in such greater dire straits that we immediately dismiss any and all, even of the smallest forms of suffering that we have, even that chronic undercurrent of anxiety that we walk around with. The ruminative part of me that is always at the ready to condemn myself. I should have done this. I should have done that. That kind of a voice that is always talking to me in this low grade fashion. But we went like, that's not suffering. Like why, you know, and because I don't name it as such. Instead, I conveniently ignore it, which is to evil's advantage, because then evil doesn't really have to do anything with me. Evil can lead me to my own devices. Evil can lead me to that part of me that is critiquing myself all the time. And if I were to start to name it, then the temptation is to minimize it. But what happens when someone says, gosh, that must not be very easy to walk around with that voice banging around in your head. And the moment somebody says that, you say, like, actually, it is kind of hard to walk around with that. And the moment that I open that door, that makes it possible for me to perhaps open other doors where there are other things that are also taking place, where my suffering probably lives, but that I'm plainly not aware of it. You talked about it before that, you know, we, we sort of got into it earlier. Suffering does serve a purpose, you know, in all of this. Mm. There is sort mm. of, I mean, I don't want to say upside. That seems weird to say there's an upside to suffering, but the mm. role that it plays in our lives, it shapes us. Uh, for the better in so many instances, mm. we kind of become our truest, like dare I say, most beautiful selves. We definitely become more mm. like Jesus. Mm. Mm. Like, talk mm. about that a little bit more. Delve into that some. Right. Well, I, I think this gets to the the notion in, you know, in the book. Um, it's the, the book in, in some respects, I say, is a 
it's an interpersonal neurobiological take on Romans 5, 1 through 5. And what's important, I think, to recognize is that uh, Romans 5, 1 through 5 assumes that we're living in a particular story. We're living in a story in which suffering doesn't just emerge. It's just not like, oh, there we are plopped in the middle of suffering. In these five verses, Paul begins with this notion that, like, we can trust God. There's this, therefore, if, you know, faith, through faith we've been justified, we have peace through Jesus with God. We have peace with, there, there is a story here that is, that is assumed. And most of us, we can hear that. We can hear that, therefore, since through faith we've been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and so forth and so on, and we have access to this grace in which we now stand. All these are fine theological precepts. But when you start to unpack it experientially, you recognize that faith is really about attachment. Faith is really about attachment. Like, to what degree am I securely attached to God? And by that, I mean, to what degree do I sense, literally, in my very physicality, the love of Jesus? Do I wake up in the morning and sense the presence of the Trinity in, the, in my bedroom? Am I going to walk out of my front door, like, with, literally, with a felt sense of Jesus' presence with me? How is that shaping me? And so, by the time we get to suffering in his text, he's already gone through attachment. He's gone through this notion of we are at peace with God. And the reality is that I have lots of parts of me that don't believe I'm at peace with God, that still believe I'm at war with God. The part of me that is still that believes I'm unwantable, the part of me that still hasn't like completely resolved things with my parents who've been deceased for a long time, like these parts that are still at war. And Jesus is declaring, actually, um, I've never been at war with you, but we're going to have to work on those parts that believe that you still are. And it is in that context that we come to glory, this glory that, as Leslie Newbigin writes about in his commentary on the Gospel of John, that is glory as of the Son who's loved by the Father. This glory that is really about this relational delight that God has for us, that we walk into this space of suffering being the objects of God's delight. And that's not just a theological construct. This is something that I experienced in the church at Rome would have begun to know because they're living with a group of people who are loving them, despite the fact that they live in a world that's around them that thinks that the gods are at war with them. And I'm having a deeply embodied experience of being loved. And it's in that space, as we start to talk about suffering shaping us. It's not just suffering shaping us on its own terms. It's we are being shaped by Jesus in the middle of our suffering. And we're being shaped by suffering in the presence of Jesus and in the presence of this story that's unlike any other story that is being told anywhere. And because of this attachment, because of this sense of delight that we are having to be practicing, reminding ourselves of and, and sensing and feeling in our very bodies, because of this, when I encounter suffering, suffering now comes to me through a completely different grid. It doesn't come to me on its own terms. It comes to me in the terms of the gospel, which is not just a theological construct. It is a felt, sensed, imaged, embodied encounter with the living God that I frequently do so through my encounters with his body of other believers. You talk about having a relationship with suffering. What do you mean by that? Uh, you know, uh, 
this this is this kind of comes right off the second page of the Bible. And we might this notion that when um, Adam was given the task to name things, uh, what he's doing is he's already doing what God was doing on the first page of the Bible. God called the light day and the darkness night. God called things things, right? He, he named them. He gave them purpose. And this is what Adam's doing on the second page of the Bible. And he's, he's naming things that are wild. He's giving them purpose and order, just like God does on the first page of the Bible. God takes chaos in the second sentence of the Bible, and he gives it purpose and order. He's naming things. When we have experiences within our own lives that are painful, and we start to name them, we actually recognize that we can name this thing that I'm experiencing that is not the same thing as me. I am not my suffering. I am someone who's experiencing suffering as a thing that is taking place within me. I can talk about this thing. And so therefore, this thing does not have to consume me. It does not, it does not take up residence as my identity. It is this suffering that I encounter that I can also then turn my attention to others who are with me and who are loving me in the presence of this suffering. And we can say to the suffering, you're happening in my life in a way that God did not intend originally. This is not by God's intention, but God is in the middle of this conversation with you in the room and God is in charge of you and God and I and my, and my other friends here in the room, we are in charge of you and not the other way around. And this is why we talk about my relationship with suffering, this sense that it's not going to own me. It's not going to define me. It is separate from me. And I can have a relationship with it in which I can say, I'm grateful for its presence in that, in that I can still glory. I can still remember what I am and who I am because I'm being reminded by the presence of others, even in the middle of this pain and therefore start to see that, oh my goodness, uh, I'm actually a person of greater patience because of my suffering. I'm actually a person of greater joy because of my suffering in ways that if my suffering hadn't happened, I wouldn't be. And here's, this is where, you know, others will look at Christians and say, this is kind of weird. Like, how is it that these people are becoming people of greater joy in life, despite their suffering? How is this possible? How is it that Stephen's face shone like an angel while he was being stoned? How is that possible? Because even in the presence of his suffering, he's sensing even more deeply the presence of his God that allows him to have a different relationship, even with those who are stoning him. Wow. You know, <laughs> Never thought of that. I, I, I'm just picking something up there personally. I grew up with um, a kidney problem that caused me great mm. pain until I was 15. Mm. I could no longer go to school. Mm. And I have mm. often, mm. I've never had words for it before, but I have mm. often mm. referred to, I have a different perspective on life. And I have a different perspective on being uncomfortable. And I think mm. it's because as a child, you don't have any, any other thing to relate to. I was born into that. I lived that until I was a sophomore in high school and uh, physically couldn't even operate any longer. And, and you're kind of giving me words for this different perspective I have on not expecting everything to be so, for lack of a better word, Americanized <laughs> comfort, right. everything going perfectly. Right. And if it doesn't, you know, we reject it. Um, right. 
Wow, this yeah. is bringing yeah. tears yeah. to my yeah. eyes right now well, to be well, thankful th- for what I went through. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think also, you know, when we think about um, uh, the, the, the demographic to whom Paul would have been writing, um, he's writing to a demographic of people, most of whom would not have been our demographic. Uh, most of the most of the people who were part of the church would not have been uh, who, would not have been associated with a what we would consider to be anywhere from a middle to upper middle class socioeconomic, uh, you know, demographic of the Roman Empire. And so for them, the notion of suffering was just as common as breathing in some respects. Not even having to do necessarily even with following Jesus, but just the life that one lives. There are things that are just really, really difficult about it. And we now have been trained to believe that suffering, you know, it absolutely shouldn't be happening. Exactly. And if it is, somebody should be held accountable for this. This shouldn't be happening to anybody. And so we don't give ourselves even the opportunity to have a relationship with suffering, to be curious about it, to see in what way is now this going to create opportunity for transformation. Now, of course, we, we want to, you know, we want to eliminate malaria. We want to take care of AIDS. We, we want to do all the things that we can do to eliminate people's suffering. There's no question that we're moving to that. But eventually, we all come to these places where no matter what I can do, I can't eliminate this. And that's where we come to these spaces in the same way that Job couldn't eliminate it. He was doing everything he can. He couldn't stop it. And so what is he going to do instead? And what he did do that most of us uh, don't necessarily want to do is that Job stayed in the conversation with God. His friends, they were looking for exit strategies from this conversation. They were tired of this. They couldn't tolerate this anymore. Job didn't have any choice, but Job didn't leave. Job didn't take, Job didn't take his life. Job stayed in the fray and he was mad and he was confused and he was all the things, but he was present to his suffering without running away from it. And it's in that sense that when we develop a way of talking about that, when we're naming that experience for what it is, um, we give ourselves the opportunity to be changed by it. And at the same time to allow others who are around us uh, to bear witness to that as well. You're not a stranger to suffering. I mean, none of us are, but uh, since we are talking about, you know, how it, it really can can shape us, especially I like how you phrased it in the presence of Jesus, how he how he helps lure us into place of, you know, being shaped by that. Could you share a, a little more of your story, your suffering that you've dealt with? Yeah, you know, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about uh when we talk, when we talk about suffering, it has to do with the nature of uh, the role of isolation. That uh, a significant way, a significant part of what makes suffering suffering, <coughs> pardon me, has everything to do with the degree to which we find ourselves being alone with whatever that painful experience is over time. And you know, for me. Uh, you know, you, you wouldn't necessarily know this by looking at me from the outside, but, you know, I, I grew up as a, as a kid who was just pretty ruminative about a lot of things. 
And so um, I had lots of m- moments and settings in which I rather uh, obsessively was uh, worrying about things in my head, largely that had to do, you know, I, I said I'm, I met Jesus most powerfully when I was 13 and within six months had entered into this existential crisis that lasted for about the next 20 years. And this internal banging around in my head of whether or not I was right or wrong and so forth and so on about all any number of things that I would be that would have me awake at night and early up early in the morning. Um, and so I, I think therein w- w- we would say I, I would say would be one source of what it's like. And, and, and part of part of that rumination is really grounded in a part of me that believe I write about this in the book um, that believes that I'm not wantable. And it's, this is not, not all of me believes this. Most of me doesn't believe this, but there is a part of me that believes this. And this part of me has been around for a really long time. And this part shows up in particular moments and times. Uh, and it really kind of gets me by the throat. And to this day, I'm still in conversation with this part of me. And so I think there is the part of me, for instance, that this part that believes I'm unwantable will work really, really hard to do everything I can to imprint myself in somebody's mind and heart, because I'm convinced that as soon as we're done talking and we get off the phone or we stop the Zoom call, that I disappear from your head. I just disappear. And, and this, would be, this would be fair to say, like, this is true in my marriage. This is, this is true with my kids. This would be true for my closest friends. This is, and because there is this part of me that uh, has, again, it's, it's, my, it's my own particular part. So there is a certain suffering that I'm working really hard to manage as far as that's concerned that has taken on all kinds of roles and shapes and shows up in all kinds of ways over the course of my life. And then I would say, uh, you know, that, that same part of me that believes I'm unwantable, uh, you know, showed up um, uh, a few years ago when I, I was experiencing some of the, probably some of the darker months of my adult life. This is back probably about six or seven years ago. Um, there were a number of things going on in my life um, over which I didn't feel like I had very much uh, the, the kind of capacity to control that I wanted to and was feeling extraordinarily incompetent at. And, you know, you get to a point where uh, um, these things uh, take up residence with, with, you know, certain parts of you that believe that you're not enough. And it becomes such a force in your life that I, I just, I got to places where, you know, I would go to bed at night and I would think, gosh, if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning, I think I would be just fine. It would be such a relief because what I would be relieved from would be me. I thought I wasn't being relieved from other people, but I'd be relieved for me. I, I wasn't suicidal. I wasn't thinking of taking my life. It never got to that point. But there's this space of feeling like there, I would be relieved. And what really came for me was community. It was the, it was the capacity. It was, the, it was this process of being able to say these things out loud to a handful of people in particular that were able to meet me in this space without contempt, without shame, and actually normalized a lot of what was going on in my head in such a way that that suffering was mitigated primarily because of the presence of others. And this is why we say that so much of what suffering is for so many of us is that we experience our pain over time in isolation. 
And this is where we as the body of Jesus are called to recognize that God takes us and our role far more seriously than we do when it comes to our being present for those in our communities who really are suffering. Wow. Just feel- that word unwantable. Yeah. It's just so, so relatable and mm. the importance that we have for each other. Misty, go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel, I feel so seen right now. And you were, we were, <laughs> I know. We've been talking about the isolation of suffering and I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't know anybody else ever had that thought. Mm. Mm. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. 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 Just if you didn't wake yeah. up, it would, it'd, it'd be better. So, right. yeah. 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 Be, be a relief. Life is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, this is what I mean when I say, you say life is hard and you know, uh, um, Scott Peck, when he wrote his classic book, the road less traveled that came in 1978, this is the opening sentence. Life is difficult. And uh, we live in a world, especially, you know, 21st century, the 21st century West, we live in a world that is, uh, th- that frequently uh, sends messages and trains us to believe that life should not be difficult. It should not be. And so when it is, there's something dreadfully wrong with me or with the world as, as opposed to like, no, actually it is difficult. It's difficult. It's difficult to be human. It's difficult. Like the, the excruciating, I, I, I think one of the first sentences, this excruciating work of living. But we, we have so many accessories, you know, you know and, and, and the supercomputer that we walk around with in our purses and our pockets is just one example of that. But we have so many accessories that keep us from ourselves, that protect us from ourselves. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> right. And so, and, but, but then, you know, the thing is, you know, Crank, when, when, when you, you, you live with a daughter with special needs, like there are certain things that show up in our lives that just make it unavoidable for us to recognize that life is difficult. And it's not difficult just because it's difficult because it is. We've just accessorized ourselves to a point where actually Jesus just becomes one of those accessories. Until like, you know, something really happens that unveils and pulls all the curtain back on my vulnerability and the fact that I'm not the master of the universe and I can't stop all that. And then I get to a point where goodness, um, life gets to a point where I'm like, it would just be easier if I didn't wake up in the morning. You know, you're right. This device in my hand right now uh, helps me avoid life. And Mm. When yes, you think about it, joke. why am I continually going to this, this? Am I trying to get away from something? Uh, I can be so easily entertained and take my mind off of whatever wow. I'm dealing with that, yeah. uh, you know, it's dangerous, really. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I tell people, look, I'm not a Luddite. And, 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 and we say, look, technology of any kind uh, does, uh, it does, it, it does one thing every time. And then the second thing it might do. The first thing is the technology is intended to make life more convenient. And the second thing that technology will do invariably is that it will make it possible for us to become increasingly distant from one another, disconnected. I mean, you take the wheel and we have a wheel and now I can plow my field more easily, but it also means I can move five miles away from you and I don't have to look at you, right? Um, we have artificial intelligence. 
And it's easy for us to just demonize the whole thing and say, oh, that's all bad. We would say, actually, we're using artificial intelligence already. And we see that there are certain benefits to it. But it also will be the next thing that we humans will use to separate ourselves from ourselves and from each other. And then, and with that, I'm reminded of the opening chapter of C.S. Lewis's fiction novel, uh, The Great Divorce, where, you know, we, we, the, the chapter opens with us being in hell, where everyone builds their houses farther and farther and farther apart from one another. And, wow. Um, I didn't know he saw so, the future. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you brought up Job and his buddies, mm. and it it does illustrate maybe what we shouldn't be doing. How do you help a friend that is suffering? Uh, obviously, maybe it's not giving bad advice or <laughs> opinions, because I think that's what his buddies did there. Sorry. Ask a bunch of tough questions, yeah. but how do you Sorry. how do we help our our friends? Yeah, you think you're suffering. Wait till I have a chance to speak with you. Um, um, well, I, you know, I think th- this is one thing that I, I, I think e- evil, uh, as we say, evil is the second smartest force on the planet. And it is effective primarily because of its subtlety. And one of its subtle maneuvers over the course of human existence uh, that began in the garden is to persuade us that our very presence, just being in the room, that my, my presence is of little value. That, that if I'm going to be helpful for you, I have to come with my wit and my wisdom. I have to come with a solution for your problem. The sense that my just being in the room and attuning to you, just being curious with you, with loving kindness, without, without, without coming with a solution, as if you're a problem to be solved, but rather that you are a piece of artwork that is waiting to be uncovered, archaeologically discovered, even in suffering. That one of the things I would say to our listeners, if, if you want to be helpful for someone who's suffering, you can, we can just come to them. And even though they say, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to. And you say, well, I just, I just want to be with you. I want to be with you. And, and of course, this will, be, this will be uncomfortable for the one who is suffering, perhaps, because they might be embarrassed to be seen in their suffering and so forth. And you say, yep, I get it. I get it. I have parts of me that are embarrassed to be seen, too, which is why I want to be with you. I just want to come and be with you. And we don't have to ask, like, well, we can say, well, how are you doing? But, like, you can look at them and you can know how they're doing, right? And they might not want to say, but you might say, gosh, I'm imagining that where you are is just really not very fun. Because it's true, you can say that. And they might say, yeah, it's not very fun. You say, that's got to be really hard. And one does not have to say, well, I think that, you know, that, that we, we know that God is in the middle of all this. Like, I can tell you that when I'm in the middle of a migraine headache, telling you that God's in the middle of all this is not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm thinking like, then, then I mean, you, you know, it, it's not very, but to say this is really hard. Yeah. We become the voice of Jesus. We, as we say, as when I'm, when I'm training clinicians and it's like, look, we are the gospel. We are the gospel. And by that, I don't mean this in some panentheistic way in which we are really God. I don't mean it in that way. I mean that 
God could have done things very differently. He could have sent Jesus and Jesus didn't need to recruit disciples. Jesus didn't need Pentecost. The Holy Spirit didn't need to kind of enter into his enterprise through his witnesses. Why doesn't God just come universally to everybody all at once and make it equally possible for, why is he using people? Because this has been what he's been doing from the first page of the Bible. He has not yet, and he's not going to give up on his intention for us to become rulers of the earth. And he's not looking for himself to take that, to take our job away. And so we are those who, with our embodied presence, with our tones of voices, with our gazes, with our body posture, we, filled with the Holy Spirit, we become the gospel. We, like, Paul's really serious. Look, when Paul had lots, I realize this is maybe going, like, way off the grid from your question. Paul had lots of metaphors that he could have used to describe the church. Why does he use the body? Why does he say you are the body? We are the body of Jesus. Look, at the time that he's writing, the body was only utilitarian for the Romans. It was only that. If I'm a Roman citizen, I could have sex with whoever, whenever I wanted, if they're not a Roman citizen. Your body is just like, it's another tool for me. Paul comes along and says, actually, the God of the Bible is glorifying the body. The the God of the Bible is honoring the body. So we're going to use that metaphor and we're going to undo what the Romans, what the Mediterranean culture was doing with the body. We're going to do what God says the body is about. And this is going to be who we are to to those who suffer, which means that when we are with others, our very presence, our embodied presence, like I said, the tone of my voice, the gaze of my sightline, all of those things exude loving kindness from Jesus. And I can say, this is really hard. And as they hear that, they're going to have the sense that they're not by themselves in their suffering. And as I am willing to stay present with them over the course of time, not just for 20 minutes here, but I'm going to come back in a couple of days and do this again and again and again and again as a way to let them know that their suffering is actually an invitation for greater intimacy rather than something that is pushing it away. I remember something I saw you were talking about, just that presence with somebody Mm -hmm. and their suffering uh, 10 years ago that that really repositioned things for me. And it it was, uh, it said when, thank you for when I couldn't get up off the floor for just laying there with me. And I've been very fortunate to have friends that have done that for me. And I'm telling you, even though they didn't say anything because they didn't know what to say, Hmm. that's the most Jesus I've seen in somebody in the middle of my suffering and the closest Hmm. I felt to God in my suffering. Just that unconditional, silent, I'm here. Hmm. Right. We like to say that um, uh, the way the, the, the mind, brain, body matrix has been created by God is that first we sense and then we make sense of what we sense. First, I sense things in my body and only then do I make sense with my thinking brain. And that's true for healing as well. Uh, Before the words of God loves you make sense to me, I'm first going to have to sense it in some way, shape or form. Before the whole notion that Jesus is in our presence is going to make sense to me is if someone is willing to, even without words, just as you said, come and be present with us in our suffering, even if we're silent, but we're attuned and attentive. You know what really drew me 
to exploring this book along with you is a quote. I'll read your, your own words back to you. I make no promise that we will suffer less, but I am confident that we will suffer differently. It is my intention that this book, as this book unfolds, you will come to discover what my patients who are doing the hard work of living have also discovered. Through suffering, we form hope, durable Thank mm. you for those words. Mm. Wow. You're welcome. Thanks be to God. What an amazing mm. time we've had with yeah, you. Yeah, this is good. Mm. You know, mm. I, I'm just learning through this whole process as well. You know, the Bible says that they will know Christians because know we're Christians because of our love towards one each other. And um, it just shows mm. what we're supposed to do when we're around mm. those that are suffering and reach mm. out, and be mm. with them. Um, mm. <laughs> You know, we had a lady that called, was it yesterday or the day before, and talked about a horrible tragedy where a family had lost a, a child, a young child. She mm. goes, what do I say? We're like, mm. well, I don't know. Mm. I don't think you should say anything. Mm. Just be there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's mm. what we're learning today mm -hmm. is just be present mm. Um, mm. with people. Thank you, Dr. Kurt Thompson, The Deepest Place, The Suffering mm. and the Formation of Hope. Thank mm. you for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much. Where Thank can we find you? Well, uh, you can find me in a number of places. The first thing I would say is that I have a podcast called the Being Known Podcast. Um, we're about to uh, release our, uh, we're, we're in the middle of our eighth season that we've released. And so that's the first uh, way that you can find me. So it's the Being Known Podcast, again, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can find me at my website, uh, kurtthompsonmd.com. And I also have a small nonprofit called the Center for Being Known uh, that tries to do work to make available um, a number of different things, including these confessional communities for the lay public. And then last, mm. for those who may have questions about this, I am part of a private practice called New Story Behavioral Health that's here in uh, Falls Church, Virginia. You can also follow me on uh, Twitter and Instagram uh, as well. Well, thank you, Kurt. We hope uh, that you didn't suffer too much through our interview. <laughs> 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 oh my gosh this has been fabulous I'm, I'm, so, I'm so grateful thank you thank you for having me well, you're this welcome. has been great you're welcome god bless you thank you for your time thank you thank, thank you very much. You so much all right. all right have a good day thanks thanks for listening to the kinkle fritz and friends podcast heard on family life radio we would appreciate it so much if you could rate review and subscribe wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts you can also find more exclusive content at myflr.org and FLR Mornings on both Facebook and Instagram. And if you support Family Life Radio, thank you.